Uh, If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 18. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 17 uh, this morning. Uh, If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is the Word of God. And they were bringing even babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated and let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light to our paths. We pray that you would lead us by your word and that your Holy Spirit would illumine the word. Give us understanding into your word, help us to believe it, to receive it with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. Would you bear your fruit in us all for your glory and increase in us a desire and a hunger for your word and a deeper love for you. For we ask all of this in the matchless name of the word made flesh, Jesus our Savior. Amen. In May of 1940, British and French Allied troops during World War II found themselves stranded on the beach in northern France at a place called Dunkirk. Uh, They had been on the retreat from German uh, troops, pushing them back from the Belgian border, and now were stuck. They're back against the English Channel with nowhere to go. The German army was continuing to press against them and German Air Force continuing to uh, bombard them on the beaches. Uh, The British Air Force was doing their best to try to hold some of that off, but uh, these troops were largely stranded, largely helpless, and largely without defense. Uh, The British Navy set about uh, carrying out a rescue plan uh, called Operation Dynamo, which is a great name. And part of their plan was to send warships to the beach there at Dunkirk to rescue these British and French troops. Uh, But the depth of water there was such that these warships couldn't really get close to the beach. And so they had to kind of dock farther out, send boats in to get the troops out. It was a slow process. It was a dangerous process because of that, because all the while they're being attacked from the air and German troops are pressing in. Uh, launching artillery and so forth at them. So they came up with another idea, another plan to help speed up the rescue. Rather than just relying on the Navy ships, they sought for what later became called the little ships to pitch in. Fishing boats, tugboats, steam ferries, all captained not by sailors in the British Navy, but rather the fathers and grandfathers of the troops who were stranded on the beach at Dunkirk. These boats, this massive 
a flotilla of these small tugboats and steam ferries um, and fishing boats. This massive groups of boats, uh, group of boats made their way across the English Channel and carried out uh, what was later seen as a miraculous rescue of nearly 400,000 troops from Dunkirk. It's often now referred to as the miracle at Dunkirk. Can't you picture it? These little tugboat captains with a pipe in their mouth, just <laughs> making their way across the English Channel as Germans are, they were kind of held off by the weather for a bit, which was helpful. But they were up against a mighty army and a, a mighty oppressor and enemy. And yet this little humble group of fishing boats, fathers and grandfathers making their way across the English Channel were able to carry out this amazing victory and rescue. Of course, it didn't end the war. Things got worse before they got better. But the rescue itself was a triumph in spite of the opposition to them. The kingdom of God is somewhat like that. It's glorious, but the way in is through humility, not pride through weakness, not strength, through confession of our own inability and our deep need, not dependence upon our ability or self-sufficiency. Rather than seeking our might and our ability and our effort as the way into the kingdom of God, we are to come in through confession of weakness. In this passage that we've just read, Jesus shows us generally the way the kingdom of God flips upside down our expectations, the way we tend to think about how to gain acceptance with God. He shows us the kind of faith required in order for us to belong to his kingdom. And more specifically, he shows us his heart for children and children as an example, a concrete example of what saving faith must be. And so in this brief episode of Jesus's ministry, we see that the heart of Christ towards his people is one of grace, that he operates on a principle of grace rather than on a principle of merit. We make just a brief note about the context of this story. We kind of jumped in without any uh, precursor to what's going on here. Uh, in Luke's gospel, this story is kind of bookended with a contrast of what false faith looks like and what true faith looks like. And so the beginning of chapter 18, you have this story of a persistent widow who has a case that she is pleading with an unjust judge who neither fears God nor man. But she's persistent. She keeps going and keeps going and keeps going until the judge finally gives in. And Jesus presents that as a model of faith expressed in prayer. And that mention of faith leads him to set up a few contrasts of what real faith looks like and what false faith looks like. And so you have a story of two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee puts his faith in himself. The tax collector pleads for God's mercy, and he is the one who in the end is justified. And then you have a contrast between little children being brought to Jesus and a rich young ruler who asks, what must I do? in order to inherit eternal life and who in the end is unable to sacrifice the things that he loves in order to gain the kingdom through faith. So this passage is presenting 
to us in a series of contrasts what it looks like to have faith, what it means to belong to the kingdom of God, how we are to receive it. And so we see in this passage first that Jesus has a heart for children. Jesus has a heart for children. You see this in two ways. First, you see it in the disciples' action, and then Jesus' reaction to what the disciples do. What's going on here? Uh, As far as we can tell in this brief little story, which is kind of a unique story, by the way, um, nobody's, nobody's being healed. People are coming to Jesus, but nobody's being healed in this story. There doesn't appear to be any kind of admission of sin. These children are not saying anything to Jesus. Jesus is not pronouncing forgiveness of their sins. It's not, it's not one of those types of transactions. It's just this simple, unique slice of Jesus's life that, that captures his merciful heart for those who are vulnerable, for those who are in need. I mean, it's just an amazing story. Presumably, Jesus and his disciples are in a house. They're on their way to Jerusalem. This is leading up to his final week right before he goes to the cross. They're in a house. Jesus has been uh, teaching, presumably in parables, teaching about the kingdom of God. And at some point, as Jesus is in the house with his disciples, some people begin to bring their children to Jesus. It's likely that it's fathers bringing their children to Jesus. You know, we probably in our minds, we picture mothers bringing them, but it's a masculine pronoun describing those who are bringing the children. So you have fathers likely, maybe with the mothers, bringing their children to Jesus, but they meet a roadblock at the house. The disciples perhaps are in the doorway, blocking them, preventing them from coming in to see Jesus. It's as if the disciples have not learned the lesson of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which Jesus had just explained to them. So here you have the disciples uh, blocking these parents, these fathers at the very least, from bringing their children to Jesus. A concrete example of the story that he has just told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. It was common practice in Jesus' day for parents to bring their children to a known rabbi, to have them uh, have the rabbi bless their children, lay their hands upon the children, and pray a, uh, pronounce a blessing upon them. That's what was going on here. They're bringing their children to Jesus so that he will lay his hands upon them, pray for them, and bless them. And in fact, Matthew and Mark tell us that's exactly what Jesus did at the end of it. Uh, they get to the door. They get cut off. The disciples intercept them. Send them away, even rebuking them, rebuking these parents for bringing their children to Jesus. Stop. You can't come in. Now's not the time. Which raises a question. Why would they do this? Why are they keeping children from coming to Jesus? Why are they keeping parents from bringing children to Jesus? Well, in the first century, Children were cared for. Children were, were loved, obviously valuable uh, parts of fam- members of the family. Um, but children had no social status. Uh, they had no social standing. Their children were not in a place of honor in society. Perhaps they were looked down upon in, in some sense because of that. And the disciples here seem to be measuring the importance of children in those worldly terms. They're not significant. They're not honored. Perhaps they're not worth Jesus' precious and limited time. Perhaps that's what they were thinking. 
Perhaps they thought that children were below the dignity of Jesus, despite the commendable ways that Jesus has spoken of children prior to this. Or perhaps they were just thinking in terms of simple transaction. What do children, here Luke highlights even babies, what do children have that they can contribute? What do they bring to the table of any value? Children take. They are in need all the time. Some of you are raising young children. You know this experientially, how much it requires to care for a child. They are so needy. It's true. Some of you are taking care of grandchildren. You understand how needy children are. They take, they need, they have to be, even in this case, brought to Jesus by somebody else. They can't even come on their own. Perhaps the disciples were thinking they will have to wait Jesus has more important things to do, more important people to teach. Children don't offer anything. They don't bring anything to the table. Whatever the reason, it's not stated explicitly. I'm just trying to think through what it might be. Whatever the reason was, the disciples had missed the message of the kingdom of God and how that changes the way that we view people, even little children. It's not social status that gets you into the kingdom of God or keeps you out of the kingdom of God. It's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant to your membership, your citizenship in the kingdom of God. Those who are at the fringe, those who are outcasts, these are the ones most often honored by Jesus in the gospels. He came for sinners. Belonging to the kingdom is not a matter of what you bring able. It's not a matter of what you contribute or how much value you bring to the group. It's not about merit. It's pure, undeserved, freely given gift received by those who know and acknowledge their need for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, before we start thinking how much better we are than the disciples, uh, be easy to look down on them. Surely none of us would stand in the doorway and keep parents from bringing children to Jesus. Uh, we should recognize how much value we place on merit, how much value we place on achievement, on personal achievement, and how we, we struggle with that in relation to Christ. We often smuggle that view in to how we relate to God because the reality is Nothing else in the world works like the kingdom of God. Nothing. I mean, it's just kind of the way things are. You, you go to a job, you work, you prove your merit, and you receive wages for the things that you do. And that's okay. That's just the way that is. But I want, I want us to think for a second about how the message of merit and of personal and self-achievement often gets brought into the way that we relate to Christ and the way we think about his kingdom. Think just, for example, of education. I love education. I love educators. I know some of you are in that, so we're all, we're, all, we're all thumbs up on education, but just think about how education works and the message that um, you know, students going through education kind of get on a day-to-day -day basis. The dominant message of education is merit-based. Earn good grades. Apply for scholarships. Some are need-based, but many are merit-based. You get good enough grades, you'll get scholarships, and you'll be able to go to a good college earn good grades in college, 
and your achievement, your merit will get you a good job out of college. And then your merit, your achievement out of college and the good job that you got because of the good grades that you made in college, funded by the scholarships that you got because of the good grades that you earned in high school and so forth, all of that will give you all the things that you want and all the things that you need, all because you did it. You got it. You achieved. You earned it. It's built upon merit. It's not saying that's right or wrong. I'm not making a comment, any kind of social commentary about how all that works. It's just a matter of fact. And everything else in the world works in terms of merit as well. And we need to think about how that impacts the way we view Christ and the gospel and the kingdom of God. It's hard not to think that our relationship with Christ is somehow based on what we do when everything else in the world functions that way. We superimpose the message of merit as well in our relationship with others. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Uh, I've done all these things, I deserve these things back, and if I don't get them in this transactional relationship of merit, then things don't, don't go well, and we don't relate to one another on the basis of grace, even if we think that God deals with us in that way. We often operate in friendships and marriage and parent-child relationships with that same merit orientation. It's earned. you got to work hard for it. And if you don't, you don't get it. You don't receive. What do we need in order to get our hearts right side up? One thing we need is to see Jesus' heart for children. The disciples push them out. Jesus brings them in while rebuking the disciples. In Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus even became indignant, angry with the disciples because they were keeping children at arm's length. They were telling them, you cannot come to Jesus. And Jesus was angry over their treatment of children in that regard. He rebukes the disciples and he directly calls the children to himself. That's, that's what Luke tells us. It says Jesus called for them. He's not talking about the disciples. He didn't call for the disciples. He called for the children, saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He himself welcomes the children into his loving arms. They bypassed the disciples who had misused their authority, who had misunderstood how we receive God's kingdom. Matthew tells us in his account of this story that Jesus took them in his arms, laid his hands upon them, and prayed a benediction over them, a blessing over these children. Can you imagine that? Can you picture the scene? Against and around the disciples' roadblock, Jesus calls little children to themselves And they eagerly come being brought by their parents, perhaps some old enough to run to Jesus. They with arms wide open, he with arms wider still, bringing them into his loving embrace and pronouncing God's gracious blessing over these children. Jesus has a heart for children. Little ones, young disciples, if you're you're listening, you should know this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves little children. He is for you, and and you can trust him always. And don't let anything get in the way of coming 
to Jesus. Jesus has a heart for children. It might be easier for you now, little ones, to trust and follow Jesus than it is later. Things get a little complicated and we find ourselves struggling. Follow him now at a young age and know that he loves you and is faithful. Jesus' welcome embrace of children leads him to an explicit command and an implicit command. You have this uh, twofold explicit command, permit them, let them come, and then don't hinder them. Let them come, don't stop them. Open the way for children to come to Jesus. So how, how do we do that? What's, what's our response to this command of Jesus? Well, we can do several things. We can follow the example of Jesus who loved and welcomed little children. How are your interactions with little children? If you, if you have opportunity for that, are you displaying for them the loving heart of Christ and the way that you treat children and the way that you love and care for children? We can imitate Jesus's example and demonstrate his love uh, through our love to little children. For parents, uh, how do you permit the children to come? How do you let children come to Jesus? You train them, you teach them, you disciple them, you read the Bible with them, you pray for them and with them, you worship God together. If you're an adult who's taken vows during the baptism of a covenant child, uh, and so maybe it's not your own children that you're thinking about, you've made promises in this congregation at the very least when a child has been baptized as a member of a covenant family, you've, you've taken a vow to assist and to support parents as they raise their children in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. You've got opportunities to encourage parents to do that and even to invest in young people yourself, even if they're not your own children. You can also meet children where they are and give them what they need to grow. Children don't need adult explanations of things. That's hard for me because I want to give you all the details and all the nuances and whatever. And, you know, sometimes it's like the fire hydrant and you can't handle but just a drop. We need to meet children where they are. We need to help them as children to understand what it means to trust Jesus as a six-year-old, as a seven-year-old. What does that look like for them? They're not adults yet. Don't treat them like adults. Meet them where they are and give them what they need to grow uh, in their particular stage of life. should also say children don't need adult problems. They need to have children problems. They need to deal with the things that are on their hearts and on their shoulders and not all the weight of the world that we adults often carry with us. Let them deal with the problems of children, not adult problems. Finally, we can guard them. You can bring, let children come, permit them to come by guarding them. Think about what's influencing our, our children. What can we do to exercise godly authority and wisdom over those influences? This is about making the way open for children to come to Jesus. And so we need to think about things like social media and digital technology and, and access to all things all at once and how wisdom would help us to exercise discernment in that and, and what, what our children are receiving and being influenced by. We need to think carefully about those things. So permit them. Let the children come. Secondly, don't hinder them. Don't stand in the way. Don't, don't make it difficult for children to come to Jesus. How? Well, there's lots of ways. <laughs> we'll just pick a couple. 
How do we often make it difficult for children to stand in the way of Jesus? Or rather, how can we, or not stand in the way of Jesus, how can we not stand in the way of bringing children to Jesus, rather? One thing we can do is try to live a life of integrity between our faith and our uh, actions, between our profession and our lives. I don't know if you know this. You probably do. Children can smell hypocrisy from a mile away. They can, they can sense that something is insincere and not genuine from quite a distance, and they have no problem pointing it out or questioning things about it. You say one thing, and they're like, I've seen you do the opposite, and then they call you on it, and you got to fess up. you got to own that. We're not going to be perfect. You're not going to do everything right. We all know that, but we should make it our aim to, to join together in a, in a beautiful marriage our profession of faith, and, and our lives so that there's consistency, there's integrity between them, so that the very thing we're calling children to receive, they can see modeled with integrity in our own lives and know the gospel's real because I see it bearing fruit in so-and-so's life. Jesus is real because I see my mom or my dad loving Jesus and trying to follow him. They're, they may be stumbling and struggling, but I see them depending on Jesus, and I know that he's real because I see it in somebody else's life. If we try to live a life with integrity, children will, will see that. I remember the kind employer that I had in college who had an experience, a bad experience, with an argumentative pastor one time. And his response to that experience was, if that's Christianity, then I don't want it. And I thought that was very sad. I'm not casting judgment. I don't know what the situation was, but it, it, that always stuck with me that there was a big barrier for him coming to Jesus because somebody who represented Jesus uh, had treated him you know, with disrespect and poorly and been just argumentative, kind of beating him up about things. And he didn't see Jesus in him. None of us is perfect, uh, but are our lives adding pleasant seasoning to the profession of our faith so that others can see the beauty of Jesus in us and are not hindered because of us? Sometimes we substitute man-made traditions for the authority of God's word. We're dogmatic about things that are secondary rather than things that are primary and of first importance. Not everything is centrally important. We need to make those things clear and allow for some differences. Jesus not only explicitly commands us to welcome little children and not hinder them, but he gives us this kind of implicit command by offering children to us as an example of what faith ought to look like. Notice he says, permit the children, don't hinder them, and then he gives a reason. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these, these children who have been brought to Jesus. Jesus says, they are a concrete example of the type of people who belong to the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Not just saying it belongs to little children, but belongs to those who have faith in the same way that these little children have faith. The kingdom of God is all of his saving blessings, and children provide an example of what faith ought to look like. And so Jesus says, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it at all. What's the point? What's the point of comparison that he's making here when he holds forth little children as an example of faith? Well, two things it's not. 
do things that's not. He's not saying that all, all children are perfect and sinless and all children have faith. That's, that's, not, that's not the point. He's capturing rather some characteristic of children that should also be characteristic of true faith, regardless of age, regardless of age. So he's not saying children are perfect and sinless, and that's why they're the example. That's not the point. He's also not saying that faith should be childish, right? There's a difference between a childish, immature faith and a childlike, mature faith, which can be both things at the same time. So it's not a childish faith, faith that never grows, a faith that doesn't um, produce fruit. It's not a childish faith. It's a child like faith. So, so therefore, what does it tell us about what true faith is? Well, think about children and characteristics of especially young children that would characterize faith. They're needy and they know it, and they're not ashamed to ask for help in the midst of that need. Babies, they need so much They need to be fed. They need to be washed. They need to be changed. They need to be patted to sleep. They need to be carried around everywhere. They cannot do for themselves. And to a certain extent, however babies know this, they know it, right? Because when they need something, what do they do? They communicate it to you, crying or or however they may do it. They communicate the need that they know that they have. Jesus is saying that part of what is required to enter and to receive his kingdom is to know that like little children, we ourselves are in deep need. And we must acknowledge it. And in acknowledging it, come to the one who can meet us in our need with grace in all that we cannot do for ourselves. Faith is humbling ourselves, acknowledging our need and running to Jesus for the blessing of his grace. That's how you receive the kingdom, to know that you are in need of another to give it to you. Sometimes you're in need of another to bring you to Jesus himself. Regardless of how it expresses itself, we are all in need of God's grace. Our sin places us in need. We are unable to earn our way into the kingdom. We must receive it as a gift from God's grace, which raises the question for us. So we think about the heart of Jesus and how he opens his heart toward those who are vulnerable, toward those who are in need and welcomes them and has strong words for those who would stand in their way. Where is your hope? Where is your confidence? Are you looking at your own ability, your own strength, your own achievement, your own right thinking, whatever it may be? Are you looking at that? as the reason God welcomes you? Is that your merit before God, or have you acknowledged you have no merit? Jesus must be your righteousness, and he welcomes all who come to him acknowledging that need, and he will not cast you out. We need to see that the kingdom of God operates on a different principle than the world and then even our own hearts. He operates on grace, giving what is not deserved, but giving it freely to all those who acknowledge their need for it and those who come to Jesus. We need to see the heart of Jesus for children, to welcome them, to help them know and trust Jesus, and for all those with childlike faith. And so may we, in the end, be like 
children brought to Jesus, flinging wide our arms to embrace him, knowing that his arms are open wider still to welcome us in, to give us all that we need in our sin, our shame, our guilt, our vulnerability, our pain, all of it. Jesus meets us in it and gives us grace and welcomes us as beloved children. Would you pray with me?